fourth section of the guidelines manual, there's chapter two, in fact, it's the bulk of the guidelines manual, pretty much, uh, that is chapter two. So how do you determine which particular guideline is going to be the chapter two guideline you will use? Well, that's in guideline 1B1.2. One means that you're in chapter one of the guidelines manual. B means you're in part B of chapter one. And then 1.2 is the specific guideline there. So obviously I'm now referring you back to chapter one. Well, chapter one is probably the most important chapter in the book for correctly applying chapters two, three, four, and then ultimately chapter five. So uh, there are a lot of things going on in chapter one that we will be referring to, uh, particularly this guideline and relevant conduct, which is also back in chapter one. When you're deciding which chapter two guideline you're going to use, you use the one most applicable to the offense of conviction. And again, going back to some of the decisions early on the Sentencing Commission made in writing guidelines, uh, it was like, do we write these guidelines for an offensive conviction system? You know, it's what you're convicted of is going to dictate essentially what the sentence is going to be. Or is it more of a real offense sentencing system? You look at what really went on out there, regardless as to what they're convicted of, and then the sentence would really be driven by that. And the Sentencing Commission really has come up with what we sort of see as a hybrid system. Uh, but that hybrid system begins as an offensive conviction system. What the defendant is convicted of will dictate which Chapter 2 guideline is going to be used. In your guidelines manual, back in Appendix A, we have what is called a statutory index. And the statutory index lists most of the codes that the Sentencing Commission sees being violated that result in convictions in the federal court. We have those codes listed. And then we list the Chapter 2 guideline that we think should be the applicable guideline for that offense of conviction. Now, in our scenario, what was our defendant convicted of? What, what statutory section of law? 2113? Okay, and what was the subsection? A and D. Okay. Now, if you go to the Appendix A, you'll see that under 2113A, we have four potential Chapter 2 guidelines listed. You know they're Chapter 2 guidelines because they all begin with the number 2. Now, under 2113D, you see there's just one guideline listed there. And there has to be a decision as to which guideline is the most applicable guideline for your offensive conviction. If you were to look up those guideline sections that are listed back there, those Chapter 2 guideline sections, you would see that they are the guidelines, 2B1.1, larceny guideline, the burglary guideline, the robbery guideline, and the extortion guideline. Those are the four potential guidelines. The Commission says one of these probably will be your applicable guideline for this offense of conviction that we have in our scenario. The reason we have more than one guideline listed under 2113A is that if you read that section of law, 2113A, it says it's against the law to commit larceny or burglary or robbery or extortion involving a bank. So we're not really sure what that guy's convicted of on our end, 
Now, it's not going to be that complicated for you folks because you all have the charging instrument, the, the information or indictment that the individual has pled guilty to, and that will have the elements of the offense your defendant has pled guilty to. So in that case, you look and see what the defendant was convicted of. So regardless as to what the facts surrounding this offense may look like, your, concern, your concern at this point is what was the defendant convicted of? And you say, well, the defendant was convicted of larceny. That's the offense conviction. I'm reading the elements of 2113A. It's the offense of larceny. Now, it sure looked like a robbery, but that doesn't matter. In choosing the Chapter 2 guideline, you would go to the larceny guideline under that set of facts. Now, having discovered which guideline we're going to use, we go back to Chapter 2 to begin applying that Chapter 2 guideline. I think that you'll find the worksheets are a most helpful way, for those of you that have never applied the guidelines before, of making sure you don't miss a step in the application of the guidelines. It will send you through the sequential, correct sequential application of the guidelines, keeping you from missing any of the appropriate uh, guidelines or adjustments that need to be considered. Okay, the robbery guideline. Uh, the robbery guideline 2B3.1 is going to be our applicable guideline for this offense conviction in this scenario. The robbery guideline is like, I would say, most of the guidelines in Chapter 2 in that it has a set base offense level. This defendant is going to start at an offense level 20. You've looked at your sentencing table. This guy's down to the number 20 in that left-hand column at this point of guidelines application. But that's not the end of the calculations in Chapter 2 because then you have these specific offense characteristics characteristics that will send you further down the table or, or for sometimes back up the table, depending upon whether it's an aggravating or a mitigating characteristic. You'll see in the robbery guideline, if it's a financial institution or post office, you add to it. Another circumstance in which police do not need a warrant to search your home is hot pursuit. This typically involves a scenario where police are chasing someone suspected of criminal activity who then runs into your home or place that you own and the police are able to enter without a warrant in order to pursue that suspect. Here in Nevada, drug paraphernalia includes not only materials that are used for ingesting drugs, but also used in the manufacturing of drugs. So it could include theoretically pipes, water bongs, roach clips, even beakers or other laboratory equipment if it was used in the manufacturing of methamphetamine. Here in Nevada, a lot of times police will seize materials where it's not readily apparent that it was used for an illegal purpose. In order to establish that, police will often examine and check for residue, any indicia that it was used for an illegal drug purpose and not for something such as smoking tobacco or another legal substance. Simple possession of drug paraphernalia for, for personal use is only a misdemeanor in Nevada. So if you're convicted, you're looking at up to six months of local county jail. However, if you're convicted of selling paraphernalia or delivering it 
or manufacturing it, then it's a Category E felony and you can be looking at one to four years in Nevada State Prison. Even if you have the misfortune of being convicted of one of these Category E felonies, you're still entitled to automatic probation. One common defense for possession of paraphernalia here in Nevada is that you didn't actually possess it. For example, you're riding in a vehicle and law enforcement pulls you over, they search the car, they recover some paraphernalia, they charge everyone in the vehicle. Well, if the state can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you individually possess the paraphernalia, then they cannot convict you of possession of drug paraphernalia. Here in Las Vegas, Nevada, just because someone has a pipe, a bong pipe, or a syringe does not mean it was used for an illegal purpose. Quite often, we're able to establish that it was used for either legal medical marijuana, for tobacco, or for a drug that someone was validly prescribed. So a common example would be a syringe, and we're able to show that it was actually used for a legal purpose, such as insulin injection, and not to inject an illegal substance. You have a lot of debt, you're misbehaving with money, and then you come off as prideful and arrogant about how you can handle your credit cards because you pay them off every month when 78% don't, and even those that do overspend, especially those of you with airline miles. It's the biggest scam in freaking history. Americans owe almost a trillion dollars in credit card debt. 78% of you that use credit cards do not pay it off every month. That means only 22% do. When you use a credit card to purchase something, on average, studies have shown several pieces of research that you spend more money. The average is 12 to 20% more that you spend. Now, depending on the item, the size of the item, the process that you're using, you may or may not spend more than that or less than that. An example is that the average person using a credit card at a vending machine spends 178% more, meaning they get a Coke and a candy bar and a bag of chips, or they were just going to get a Coke. When you use a credit card, it reduces the emotional friction, and that's why everyone wants you to use plastic. Yes, you do spend more when you use a credit card. It's just a matter of how much more. The larger the item, the less the percentage, but it doesn't have to be much percentage for you to spend more. And those of you that are collecting airline miles, all the studies tell us the reason they offer the airline miles 
all the studies tell us that you are the worst. There's tons of research. And the hilarious thing is, is that you are massively in denial. That you really do believe you're beating them at their game. Which is humorous, really. I mean, it's like you thinking you're going to come out playing throw the ball at the carnival. A semi-rigged game put the ring over the hoop, put the hoop over the pylon at the carnival, a semi-rigged game. You're not going to come out in these games. They know the behaviors. It's not a conspiracy theory. They're just world-class marketers and spend a bazillion dollars studying your behaviors. You spend more when you get airline miles because you're so freaking excited about your free trip to Europe that's not free. Because you're so stupid, you believe all that stuff. Well, I don't agree with Dave Ramsey on the airline miles. It's just because you don't know the background and the data on this. 90% of airline miles are never redeemed. And of those that are redeemed, you have a substandard experience with the airline, which having a substandard experience with a substandard industry pretty much means it sucks. I mean, think about airline service other than Southwest as an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, Delta is Greek for we're not really taking you there. We just said we were. It's a substandard experience to start with. And then you get the opportunity to fly through three extra connections to use your free miles that was brought to you by overspending on your credit card. And somehow you and your little brain have figured out that that makes sense. This is stupid. It's stupid. Even when you're on a cash basis with a debit card like I use, I don't own a credit card. I haven't in decades. But even if you use a cash basis like a debit card, you do not feel the pain. Back in the day when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and we put gasoline in our car, we used to have to leave the car, walk into the store, and hand the... Will sealing my criminal record in Nevada restore my gun rights? Getting a criminal record seal in Nevada does not restore the person's gun rights. The only thing that restores a person's right to own and possess a firearm in Nevada is a governor's pardon. Not all Nevada pardons restore gun rights. So when people apply for a pardon, they have to be sure to check the box on the pardon application indicating 
that they want to get their gun rights back. If a person has their gun rights restored under a Nevada pardon, federal authorities cannot later use the pardon conviction to prosecute him or her for unlawful possession of a firearm under federal law. But some states are stricter than the feds and do not allow people to have guns in their states even if they were pardoned in Nevada. So always research a state's gun laws before traveling to another state. Pardons are very rarely granted in Nevada. To increase the odds of success, people are advised to hire an attorney familiar with the pardon process to write their application and appear at their hearing. If you are facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything to try to get your case resolved as quickly and favorably as possible. Anus. Committed in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner. And lastly, it was committed by a criminal gang member. Now for that one, things as simple as tattoos can prove that you're a gang member. Even though we know that just because you have a tattoo doesn't mean that. And just because you call you and your friends your gang or whatever, doesn't mean you're a part of an actual gang. But the system likes to play loose and fast with the criminal gang charges. Funny enough, they're actually doing the same thing to Lil Durk and King Vaughn in Atlanta right now. But that's a separate story. Now here's how the trial is going to play out. Murder trials usually last 3, 5, 10 days. Depends on how much material they have to present to the jury. The first day is jury selection and maybe a witness or two. But in the Melly case, as far as we know, there are no witnesses. The killings happened on a lonely stretch of road near the Everglades, which is why the prosecutors desperately wanted Bortland to turn state and testify against Melly. Looks like that's not gonna happen. Day two will be workers from the crime scene. DNA experts, detectives, timeline witnesses, and if they had the murder weapons, they would maybe ask the gun shop owner or whoever to identify that yes, they did indeed sell this gun to Melly. But in this case, they can't because they don't have the murder weapons. See, the police believe that Melly shot both boys from the back left seat. Then he got outside and sprayed up the right side of the car to make it look like a drive-by. Then the detectives claim that Cortland Henry helped Melly with a cover-up, dropping the victims off at the hospital around 4 o'clock in the morning, fabricating a story that concealed Melly's involvement while he was able to later retrieve and dispose of the weapons. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. That's just what the police claim. The timeline goes something like this. At 3.20 in the morning, Melly and three friends were seen on CCTV video surveillance, leaving the New Era recording studio in Fort Lauderdale. They got into a Jeep Compass and drove off. Bortland was driving, Melly was in the back left seat. The two victims were on the right. When Corlin got to the hospital around 4.30 in the morning, 
He told police that they were victims of a drive-by at an intersection on Miramar Parkway, but the police say there were no reports of gunshots in that area. Instead, they believe the shooting happened far west, near a waste treatment plant. And to back this claim, the police are using cell phone records to say that Bortland lied about the path he took to get to the hospital. And they also claim they got the canine dogs to sniff the area, and that somehow shows that there were no other vehicles present on the road, so it couldn't have been a drive-by, according to the police. Now after all that, day three of the trial is usually the prosecutors will have the family of the victims to be the last to testify. Then that same day, the prosecutors rest and the defendants, basically Melly's team, calls their witnesses to establish the defense. Most of the time, you don't even need witnesses. They can oftentimes argue it successfully that the prosecutor just did not meet the burden of proof. The evidence has to leave the jurors firmly convinced. That's the purpose of the trial system. Then after day three or five or however long it takes for that whole process to go out, you would wait maybe 20 minutes, 20 hours, even 20 days, whatever it takes for the jury to reach their verdict. And then we're gonna find out if Melly's guilty or if he's innocent. Now, I know that all this together sounds like the police are gonna crucify him, right? It sounds like they're gonna win, open and shut. However, what people gotta realize is without a witness, without a murder weapon, and without DNA of Melly at the crime scene, the state has a tough case to argue, especially when Melly paid a big bag for some heavy-duty lawyers that know how to poke holes in the prosecutor's arguments. What I think could be really important is this alleged phone recording that Melly has on his cell phone admitting that he's guilty. Nobody in the public has heard it, but the prosecutors are hyping it up like he's on camera admitting that he did it. But since nobody's heard it, we don't know how detailed that is. Now, I want to know what you guys think is going to happen in the comments below, but Keep in mind, this is not a federal case. When the feds come knocking, it's usually a 95% success rate. They get your ass, pause. But this is a state case. And last I checked, like the murder conviction rate in Florida is 59% or something like that. And if you wanna know how good Melly's lawyers are, they almost got the judge to agree to let Melly go on medical release during the whole COVID thing to a fan's house. Maybe the fan lived near the Broward County Jail or something, I don't know, but it's in the documents. Melly's team made a motion to send Melly over to a fan's house to recover from COVID away from the contaminated jail. And the dude, John Phillips, who's representing the victim's family, basically roasted Melly's team for trying to get that to happen. He also said that the fan allegedly had a young daughter in the house, which should disqualify him from housing someone who's charged with murder. Needless to say, the motion was denied. But this just goes to show that Melly's team is playing the win, bro. They'll try Sales of narcotics is one of those crimes for which lots of innocent people get wrongly accused and, and, and tragically often wrongly convicted. The good news is that here at Las Vegas Defense Group, we have a great record of success over the years in defending clients who are charged with drug sales and ultimately helping them to get their charges reduced or dismissed. What's going on, YouTube?
come back at you with another video. So we got some breaking news. Rapper OMB Peasy has been arrested for the shooting that took place in Atlanta recently. If you didn't hear the news, Roddy Rich and 42 Doug were on set shooting a music video. Three people ended up being shot. There wasn't many details at the time. There was nobody arrested. Now, OMB Peasy has been charged. I'm going to show you what his um, charges are. He's been arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm during a felony. So, o OMB Peasy clearly going to be facing some serious time during this incident. Three people were shot. Nobody lost their life, thankfully, but there was multiple injuries. Um, OMB Peasy now, a lot of people on the internet reacting to this all over his Instagram. You see people saying, free OMB Peasy. Um, sad situation. We see this all too often. Hopefully, OMB Peasy is not guilty of the crimes he's being accused of. Because if he is, there's a good chance he's probably going to go to prison for quite a while. Um, got to be smarter. Got to move better. Got to stay out of the streets in 2021. There's nothing left in the streets for anybody. He's claiming his innocence, though. Um, be sure that you at least give him the um, benefit of the doubt that he's innocent until this all plays out in court. Let me know what you guys think in the comments, though. Hit the like, subscribe, share, leave some feedback. Make sure you ring the notification bell, too, if you're subscribed so you get updates my future videos when they drop. Before you leave, please take just one second, too, to click the link. I'm going to pin as the top comment. It's going to take you to a dope artist out there trying to get his YouTube channel monetized. He's almost there. Please click the link and subscribe. It costs you absolutely nothing. I definitely do appreciate you watching, though. Peace. Now, what we think are multiple harms in terms of guideline application purposes. Sometimes it is best to look at the multiple counts is really a one composite harm. So sometimes we'll make the decision that even though you have multiple counts of violations, multiple, multiple uh, uh, counts of conviction, uh, that you really just have one composite harm. It's best viewed as one composite harm. So the, the approach to multiple counts is not to look so much at the counts, but to look at how many harms do we have really occurring here. And there's several ways which the determination is made as to whether you have a single harm or multiple harms. Now, the grouping rules are the things that we look at to make the decision as to whether we have multiple harms or a single composite harm. You'll hear and even read in, in the case law, these were grouped under Rule A, these were grouped under Rule B. Uh, so so they're, they're referred to as rules, even though it's still just another guideline in the manual. Now, the steps in multiple counts, it, I think basically it can be broken down to two steps. 
And sometimes you don't even have to get to the second step, so I think it's really pretty easy in, in that regard. Step one is grouping. Grouping leads us to the determination as to whether we have one composite harm, even though we've got multiple counts of conviction, one composite harm, or whether we have multiple harms. First, you see grouping counts under Rule D, because we think that's the easiest rule to group under. And if you don't group them under Rule D, how about Rules A, B, or C? Do they work toward grouping? And we'll go through this process. If you have made the determination that you have more than one harm, then just like the five robberies where we say, well, we're going to give some additional punishment, but we're not going to give five times the punishment that we would have for, for one robbery, the process the Commission sends you through is called incremental increases in punishment. It's, it's, we refer to it as sort of a unit process where you have to assign what are called units. We'll talk about that. And then these units will translate into additional offense levels, the additional offense levels representing this increase in punishment for these multiple harms. So we've got the two steps. And let me explain what the first step is, the process of grouping. Uh, if counts are grouped together, basically we're going to treat them as one composite harm. Uh, obviously, in the alphabet, D comes after A, B, and C. But we have not found anything that, that somehow uh, upsets the application of the guidelines when you get to the multiple count section to use rule D first before you use rules A, B, or C. The reason we suggest grouping under rule D first, if the counts can be grouped under rule D, is that more counts than any other type of, of count are going to fall under this type of uh, rule. And that rule says that if counts use the same or similar guidelines, I got 50 counts of drug trafficking, hmm, they use the same guideline. Each count uses the 2D1.1 drug trafficking guideline. And if that guideline is included at 3D1.2D, if you go into your guidelines manual to 3D1.2 under Section D, and we list the guidelines that are covered there, and drug trafficking is listed there, uh, then you apply the guidelines as if for a single count application. Basically what you do, you add up the quantities of the drugs, you apply the guidelines one time. They have been grouped together. They're treated as a composite harm as such, because what you've done, you've looked at the harm from each of the counts by aggregating the quantities. You're giving some consideration for all that harm when you apply the guidelines that one time. I got five counts of fraud. Hmm, each count of fraud, if I look up the statutory violation and go to the uh, Appendix A, I'm sent to the guideline 2F1.1 for each of these counts of conviction. So I know these, these counts of conviction are all using the same guideline in Chapter 2. And I know from going to 3D1.2D, looking at the list, that these gui this guideline I'm using for all these counts is the one that's listed there. So the approach is I aggregate all the monies related to this fraud conduct, apply the fraud guideline one time, and the number I come up with, the offense level, that is a, a number that represents this composite harm. 
So that's the approach. And again, 80% of your cases, probably better in some districts, are going to be your money laundering, your drug trafficking, your thefts, embezzlements, your frauds, your immigration offenses, counterfeiting, uh, a variety of others are listed there, but these are the ones you're going to see most often. Now, some offenses are excluded from grouping under Rule D. You've got multiple counts of robbery or assault or murder or kidnapping, all these crimes of violence we talked about. Federal court, that's in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's the wrong district. So my responsibility or the responsibility of my attorney is in response to that lawsuit to say, this is not the proper venue based on the statute because we don't have any connection with the Eastern District of Virginia. And you would file a motion to dismiss the case for improper venue. And the case would be dismissed. Now a way to respond to that would be either to say that there are connections with the Eastern District of Virginia. So I've said I live in the Western District of Virginia. But what if this accident happened in Richmond, Virginia? Then Richmond is a proper venue because venue can be based on where I'm from or where things happened. So if things happened in the Eastern District and I live in the Western District, you can choose which one you want to sue me in. That's your choice as, a, as the plaintiff. So I can move to dismiss. The plaintiff might respond, you're wrong. Uh, the accident happened in Richmond, so we can stay here. Another way that you will be studying venue or another attribute of venue that you're going to study is transfer. So you may have been sued in the Eastern District of Virginia, in my example. But what if I prefer the convenience of litigating in Charlottesville? I can file a motion to transfer the case from the Eastern District to the Western District. But I can only do that if the Western District would have been an initial proper venue to begin with. So venue and transfer are important concepts that you're going to learn. So these topics collectively, personal jurisdictions, which I cover first, other professors may cover second, subject matter jurisdiction, venue, and related to venue is change of venue or transfer. Those are the topics that deal with where this case is going to be litigated. You will likely spend the first half of civil procedure covering those topics. At least in my course, that's what we get it right into up to the uh, fall break in October is getting finished with venue and transfer. Again, other professors may do things in different sequence. It doesn't matter. Uh, everyone takes their own uh, approach. So that's dealing with the where a lawsuit can be brought. Now another topic that comes next, typically in the sequence, is something called choice of law. Now this is going to be covered with varying degrees of detail by different professors, and I'm going to cover it only briefly, but you'll hear something called the Erie Doctrine. You'll learn more about that uh, in your first year courses. 
Uh, but the bottom line is, once we have started litigating this case, which law, as, as between state and federal law, are we going to apply to this dispute? And the bottom line here is, if we have a simple car accident where I'm alleging negligence, that's a state law issue. There's no federal law of negligence that's relevant to this dispute. But if I've got some procedural law that needs to be applied to this case, that's going to come from federal law. That's basically what Erie Doctrine is about. It can get much more complex than that, but the choice of law uh, aspect of the case, federal versus state, is something that you may touch on. There's another aspect of choice of law that I don't really touch on, most civil procedure professors don't touch on, or touch on it very briefly, but it has its own course, which is called conflicts of laws. And that's when you're trying to decide which state's law applies to a dispute. Is it Virginia law? Is it Texas law? Is it Kansas law? There are principles that are taught in their own class called conflicts uh, that you can learn. Those are typically not covered in the civil procedure class. So that's choice of law. Now, getting into the how portion of the life of a case. The next step here would be something referred to as the pleadings. The pleadings are the physical things that you have to do and file and create to initiate a case. So once you've made this determination, we're going to be in federal court, it's going to be in the Eastern District of Virginia. That's where I'm going to file my lawsuit. What does that mean? All right. What you have to do to file a lawsuit is you have to file a complaint. So you have to draft a complaint. What does that entail? You'll look at complaints in your first year civil procedure class. There are rules that govern what a complaint must say. It has to set forth the jurisdiction of the court, the claim that you... Fujiano came in a rap game pulling millions of views that even got him a once-in-a-lifetime chance to sign the Gucci Man's label, 1017. But Fujiano could have lost everything. With going over three years in prison, he was even involved in a shooting during one of his live performances and being involved with over seven attempted murder charges that could have cost them life in prison. This is Top Trend TV and this is the Criminal History and Biography of Fujiano. Mae Brown, aka Fujiano, grew up in the Greensboro area of Georgia, a small town with a population of less than 4,000 people. Growing up with five brothers and four sisters, the difference between him and them? 
Fujiano hopped in the streets at an early age, at only the age of 14. And this was the first time he got locked up for a robbery gone wrong. Unsure of the details, but he did a little bit over a year in juvenile hall. And after Fujiano got out, at the age of 15 was the first time he ever met his father face to face. But that didn't stop him from having a life full of crime and violence. Moving to Athens, Georgia, at the age of 16, Fujiano met one of his brothers at this time and started to do home invasions and robberies in wealthy neighborhoods. But all of this robbing and stealing would catch up to Fujiano only at the age of 20 because he got locked up for a home invasion gone wrong leaving him in prison for a little bit over three years. On December 2013, on a Monday afternoon, two alleged burglars were arrested by Athens Clark police officers to a report of two men acting suspicious in a west side neighborhood. A witness called 911 at about 1.15 p.m to report that two men were dropped off by a red car on Lake Overdrive, then disappeared behind the residence, police said. An officer stopped the car on Lake Forest Drive, while the other officer spotted two suspects jump from the window of the home and took off running down Lake Overdrive, according to police. They were arrested after a foot chase in a near middle school off Tallahassee Road. After questioning, police arrested three men including Fujiano with burglary, possession of burglary tools, and obstruction of law enforcement. The driver was 17 and was charged with burglary and alteration of a license plate police said. Plus, the burglary was interrupted before anything could be stolen. Fujiano went to do three years in prison for this burglary. He says he was writing a lot of poems throughout that time after an inmate told him he should do music after hearing one of his poems. He says he was even trapping in jail, getting out at the age of 24. And when Fujiano got out, he began to take rap more serious, going back and forth to the studio consistently. And after doing some songs and seeing his true potential, Fujiano decided to take it to the next level, doing a concert contest for $10,000. And Fujiano ended up winning the contest and got signed to a label named Authentic Empire Music Group, ran by an artist named Boom Man. Without further ado, Fujiano, come get your money. Come on, come on,
And then Fujiano went to drop his biggest hit of today, named Molly. And he was talking about his baby mother at the time while he was mad at her. And this song today has over 57 million views. Then Fujiano went to drop Trapper, which has over 4.6 million views. And after that, he put Lil Baby on the song for a remix. And that remix today has over 17 million views. And all of these views and the new style he had brought the attention of Gucci Man. And Gucci Man ended up signing him around March of 2020 for $1 million. LLC versus S Corp. What is the difference? And can it save me a ton of money in taxes? What's up, guys? I'm Prince Donnell, founder of Jumping Jack Tax Franchise. Appreciate you for watching this video. Uh, first and foremost, before I even get into any of this, shout out to all of our newest subscribers. Uh, I think we're about to hit 40,000 subscribers as of today that of uh, people that have joined our family. And uh, I appreciate you. Thank you for liking. Thank you for commenting. Uh, thank you all for putting, for inserting so many questions that I can make videos about. And uh, I thank you for being a part of the family. So please like, like, comment, and subscribe to this video if I provide you with a ton of value here. This isn't even going to be a long video today because I'm just going to be breaking down the facts. And the reason why I thought it was important to make this video today is because I've been getting a ton of direct messages like, Don, create a video about LLC versus S-Corp, please. I heard it saves a ton of money in taxes. I'm about to switch over to an S-Corp. I even saw comments on my YouTube page like, nah, Don, don't do it all. You need to move to S-Corp. And it sounds great in theory, but here's the thing. And, I, and, and this, this is rule number one of entrepreneurship. And y'all know I like to give a lot of lessons on entrepreneurship as I'm going through the video and talking about the facts. Number one, if you're a new entrepreneur that's watching this video right now, um, please, 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 I am begging you, do not just do things without understanding the knowledge behind what you're doing or not hiring professionals that are going to be educating you on this process. Let me also state a disclaimer for you. I am not a CPA, I am not an attorney. Although I have a tax franchise, I still have a CPA that I have hired that handles my taxes and I still have attorneys that handle all of my legal things that I have to take care of for my business. Why? Because that's what a smart entrepreneur does. Because you don't know everything. So please do not just scroll on social media and because everybody says move to S-Corp because this theory went around or you're looking through my comments and you got this message from somebody who is like, hey, move to S-Corp and you like, hey, I'm just going to do it. No, please get the knowledge first. That's what makes you a great entrepreneur. And I'll disclaim this before I keep moving forward about LLC versus S-Corp. Having an S-Corp is a different type of beast, okay? There's a lot of different maintenance, hiring attorneys, having CPAs, payroll, all the things that I'm going to get into in a second that if you're new here as an entrepreneur or if you haven't even made a certain amount of profit, then an S-Corp might not even be for you. 
right? You can still watch this video because it's going to give you the knowledge for the future, but it may not be for you as of right now. An LLC is perfectly fine for you if you're just starting out and you may not be making enough in net profit or you can't handle all the maintenance and, and things that are required of an escort. That's fine. Guess what? When I first started my business five years ago, I started out as a sole proprietor, right? And then I, as a sole, like literally sole proprietor business was in directly in my name. Like I had no <laughs> legal protection, nothing, just me as a sole proprietor. And then I moved up and said, oh, you know what? Somebody told me I need to get an LLC for asset protection to be able to shield my business from my personal assets. So let me go ahead and move into an LLC. And I gradually moved up to LLC. And then once net profit came in, I moved over to S Corp. So understand that this is a journey. This is not something that you have to do overnight. This is not something that you got to keep figuring out. All I want you to figure out right now right? If you're new as an entrepreneur and you're not making much profit, all I want you to figure out right now is how to get your business to start getting sales, right? That's what I want you to figure out. How can I get sales? How can I worry about my marketing, right? That's what, that's the main things you need to worry about here. Now for my entrepreneurs that are starting to generate some net profit, right? You are getting customers, right? Now we have to start talking about exposure, okay? The reason why I talk about exposure is because the more customers you get, the more money you make, exposures come. Exposures come from a legal side. Exposures come from a tax side. And that's where now you have to worry about these issues on how to save money on taxes, on how to protect your personal assets. That's where that conversation starts to come into play. And this is where we now start talking about LLC versus S Corp, okay? So that's very important. Now, I would suggest, if you're watching this video, definitely make sure you have an LLC because I, I would always advocate, advocate for that. You wanna be able to have some type of legal protection in place to protect your personal assets if you're dealing with customers, right? That's the main simplest thing you can do from here. But now that we're going to be going into this video, let's talk about LLC versus S Corp. And before I do that, let me just break down the science 